Hello, fellow nerds. Check out our network site, nerdsloth.com. You can also connect with us on social media like the Facebook, the Twitter, and the Instagram. If you like what you hear, look for Nerdsloth on Patreon and consider donating to help us continue delivering quality shows straight to your ears. If you'd like to help the shows out for free, head over to iTunes and write a heartfelt review. I mean it. Make me cry happy tears. But seriously, though, anything you can do really helps us out and we love you for it. Hi, I'm Jenny Wood, writer of Flutter and A Boy Like Me. And I'm listening to Adrian Has Issues because Adrian has issues and I do too. Hey guys, welcome to Adrian Has Issues. Today I am speaking with a good friend of mine. We first talked back in, oh wow, this is going back episode 53, uh, entitled Tron of the Dead, which is a reference to a comment he had made about his creator-owned comic Overrun, which is a great book. And uh, well, let's see, since then you have a pretty extensive body of work. Let's see, my guest is a writer, editor, letterer. You know, your stuff with 451, you've done uh, six, Sunflower, which is fantastic, and um, most recently you're working on Red Dog, which you probably heard me either talk about or I've done at least the, the review for the first issue. Upcoming, you have this really cool book uh, called Freeway Fighter, but uh, please welcome back to the show, Andy Ewington. Andy, welcome back, man. Hello. Delighted to come back and uh, chat on the show again. Thanks for having me. It's been a little while, and um, obviously, I've been busy in between Podcast 53 and um, now, so the timing's good, what with um, sort of 217 and new projects on the horizon. thought it'd be a good time to, to reach out and uh, chat comics again. But since then, I've gotten a chance to check out more of your stuff, and I think, you know what, we'll, what we'll do is... Let's kind of start a little bit with your current stuff, because I, I had to talk Red Dog. I remember this was shortly after we had recorded the first episode, and a little bit while later, um, you know, stuff about that book was coming out, and I'm like, man, I really wish I had thought about to talk to you about it when you were first on, because the trailer was cool, and I got a chance to read the first two uh, issues, and oh man, it's such a fun book. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great um, story that uh, Rob Cohen's come up with. Um, and, and obviously a, a great privilege that 451 uh, felt that they were happy for me to, to, to adapt it. Um, a real sort of, uh, you know, I, I'd like to think of it as sort of Lassie in space right. type of thing um, with a thick dog um, and a, a young boy, Kyle, who's on a, the only boy in a, in a mining colony on an alien planet, um, a real hostile alien planet. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's got lots of, elements in it there's little references you know there's twin sons uh which you know for me is a little nod towards a, a popular uh sci-fi story and another little sort of uh little touches that um, obviously i don't want to give away but i mean working with rob as well i mean you know his heritage is is, is legendary what with triple x and the fast and the furious so this was a quite a nice you know a nice turn for him because it, it, it's slightly different to what you may associate with him. But again, there's still plenty of action scenes in there. 
Yeah, and I think that's kind of what drew me to the project. I'm sure anybody who's listened to this show before knows that I am a, I wouldn't say rabid, but I'm a very big fan of the Fast and Furious series. And, you know, the first one kind of really sort of set the tone. And I'm a really big fan of that movie. So when it's like, wait, Rob Cohen, wait, Andy Ewington, I enjoy both of their work. So it just seemed like kind of like a match made in heaven creatively. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm always seeing myself as the adapter. So you you try to bring uh, creatively little touches where possible, but you know this is this is Rob's story, and I, you know I would uh, you know Rob is getting some great plaudits for for his work, and you know I humbly bow before him and and you know and, and learn off of you know a seasoned pro, you know some of the, the craft that I want to take on on board and move forward with in my own writing. I wouldn't sell yourself short, though, because, I mean, yes, you may have adapted that story, but, you know, your work with the Overrun, which um, I guess we should give a little bit of a rundown of that in case people haven't listened to episode 53, because your, your creator-owned book is a lot of fun, and I feel like more people should know about it. So if you don't mind, would you mind telling everybody uh, more about it? Sure. Um, uh, Overrun is, you know, lovingly called uh, Tron of the Dead, where you have a world set inside a computer. Um, certainly not Tron-esque. This this world looks very much like our own, where you've got um, file types that walk around. Uh, if you're a JPEG, you wear you know, generally you're wearing a T-shirt with a picture on it. If you're a music file, you tend to be wearing headphones. And if you look at anybody on a normal commute, you know you can almost start identifying file type because well he's an accountant, so he's an Excel spreadsheet. You know that guy over there is listening to music, so that that's a music file. Um, and what we've got in, in Overrun is a situation where the city is, or the, or the computer is, is, is starting to um, degrade because it, it, it's, it's reached its max in terms of memory capacity um, and things are starting to be shut down. And, and the CPU, Macintosh, the guy in charge, basically decides to unleash a, a virus on, the, on his own city in order to allow a, a, a cull of some of the lower areas of memory. In doing so, he um, sort of um, knowingly unleashes a, a massive virus that, that affects the entire city. And it's, it's left to these sort of ragtag group of um, computer game, forgotten computer game characters, you know, the sort of instantly recognizable cult figures that are perhaps sort of past their sell by date, who sort of band together and uh, attempt to save the day. So, yeah, it, it's got elements of sort of political intrigue and, and lots of action. I didn't think about it when it first came out when I was reading it. I, I you know, I hate to bring it there, but you know, the, the story has actually become very bizarrely relevant to today's climate. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting one watching how society can sometimes implode on both sides of the Atlantic. I guess that's, that's human nature. So yeah, maybe, maybe it's, it's an omen of things to come. I mean, just to say that in the end, the good guys come through. So who knows? Yeah, I'm noticing that a lot with a lot of stories that I'm either currently reading or have read. For a lot of fiction, you know, we've been writing a lot of dystopian work, but now it's like, oh man, uh, some of this isn't nearly as amusing anymore. <laughs> I mean, the stories are still good though, but they kind of take on new meanings in a way. Yeah, I, th- I think I think uh, humanity loves a good crisis um, in a bizarre way, um, which is why things like The Walking Dead and Mad Max does so well um, because I think people. People love to be, you know, playing with the idea of a what-if scenario and how would they survive it. Right. And, and always looking for the worst. I mean, 
if I listen to a lot of conversations I have, even with the guys at work, generally it's, you know, talking about something bad that happened and then somebody else comes back with a, uh, a way of, of trumping, uh, pun intended, that sort of story with their own yarn, which is even worse. Nothing spreads faster than bad news, I guess. So I, I, th- I think it's a bit of a, a, a perverse love affair that we have with chaos. True, but I guess it's chaos of a controlled kind where it's easier to digest in fiction because we kind of know that in some way maybe good will prevail or maybe it won't. But here it's like, oh gosh, you know, it's much different yeah. when you have to deal yeah. with it real time. <laughs> I, I, th- I think, yeah, I think, I think people sort of love the idea of it, and then actually, when when it when the push comes to the shove, it's like, what, what what's going on? No, no, this is a really bad idea, and potentially, as as the twentieth gets closer and closer, um, <laughs> I think more, more people are going to be sitting there going, no, 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 this this really is a bad idea. Um, but, yeah, I, I guess I won't tell. <laughs> I was just wondering in and of myself, and I know it's kind of a dumb question. I'm like, okay, in terms of writing comic books where a lot of the antagonists are very over the top and cartoonish, does that almost make that harder to write then? Or do you have to go the other way now where future villains will be slightly more subdued just to kind of keep from mimicking what's happening in real life? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. It's always a, it's a, always a strange thing. I always remember um, Rob Williams in Class War where he, he he wrote in the president that was very sort of very current to the time. I think you'll probably see an increase of presidents who appear to be, let's just say, a little bit blasé and a little bit uh, trigger-happy with their tweets and appear, let's say, a little bit ill-informed and uh, narcissistic. So um, who knows? It, it it might fuel a new wave of of bad guys in the in the future. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting now what happens to fictional storytelling. And obviously, for anybody who's been following, and especially a lot of comic book creators who have been especially concerned for many reasons, both personal and professional, but. I feel like the medium has always sort of either mirrored or in some ways responded or been a commentary, even if they're not explicitly political or social. But, you know, they've always really been commentary on those experiences. So it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward, like as far as how much will this really alter how people tell stories. Yeah, I, I think uh, you're absolutely right. I think I think comics are a commentary of the time and i i think like i say i think you'll see an increase in maybe uh, right-wing agendas um versus left-wing i think that that will will happen naturally which can i guess only be a good thing for highlighting uh, certain causes and and try to be a bit of a a moral guide to the general public i guess not that they need to be preached to but it's you know writers and creators generally i find have a good moral code so you know these guys hopefully will not lead the way but you know be there giving their thoughts i I certainly will be interested to see what what's written in the coming years about it yeah and especially since for i mean how can i put this a lot of Things like, let's say, comics or movies or music, and even the performers and the products have often represented a lot of people. And, you know, look at it this way. When last year, when David Bowie died, 
it wasn't just a matter of people being sad that, you know, we lost a great performer, but, you know, to a lot of people, he represented a lot more, you know, a lot, well, a lot of icons last year had passed away. On one end, you're like, okay, well, they're just famous people, and, you know, maybe we shouldn't feel as badly about them as if we knew them, but yet they represented something more than just, you know, they are to a lot of people. For me, because you, you, you tend to share, especially when you get to my age, I mean, I'm, I'm pushing 45, you know, you start seeing some of the things that you grew up with in your childhood that perhaps you took on and were inspired by when those stars sort of diminish and, and fade, um, you feel a little bit sad in yourself because, you know, part of that was, you know, you see part of yourself dying. You know, it's like seeing when, um, you know, childhood memories, you see them crushed. When things are remade, you go, oh, I used to love it like that. But, you know, you, you can't ever live in that bubble of your, your childhood, sadly. You know, you have to grow up at some point. But you still hold an affinity to um, the, those memories and those markers that sort of helped form who you are and for me you know the the two that really sort of affected me was was obviously uh, david bowie his music was quite influential for me growing up and certainly the way that he reinvented himself nearly every point that there was a almost like a he was reaching a the eclipse moment of a certain character he would then reinvent himself for the time right um, and almost the, the perfect pop star in that way in in creating almost a, a, an immortal character or an immortal persona. He's like Doctor Who. He just kept on regenerating himself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's probably the best way to put it. Like, he really was probably the closest thing we had to the Doctor. <laughs> and I'm starting to wonder. I'm really starting to debate in and of myself. I'm like, you know what? How much of those songs, especially the early stuff, was it just music? Or how much of this was, like, direct commentary? It's like, what if this man really was from another friggin' planet? <laughs> I would love him to have been from a different planet. You know, <laughs> I still hold out that, that he is probably proof that there is life on Mars. But um, <laughs> and I mean, the other sort of uh, great name that, that I felt affected by was uh, Alan Rickman. Um, yeah. for, for me, he was also, a, you know, a huge part of um, my Christmas with Die Hard. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> but, no, and, and he, he was just an amazing uh, actor. And when he went, even my wife was... Was, was greatly affected by it. So much so that for her Christmas present, I bought her a, a painting that I'd seen of Alan Rickman, and that was uh, her present. So um, we're actually getting that framed, and that'll go up in the room somewhere. So, um, yeah, you know, these people, you know, mean something. We grew up with them, and, and we feel invested in them because they've invested their energies into entertaining us. So um, certainly, you know, it, it's a sad day when those type of um, icons disappear. Right. I was talking to my girlfriend the other day. Uh, what was the movie? Um, Dope, I believe. I was watching on Netflix a while ago, and there was a gentleman in the movie. Um, well, the comedian's name was Ricky Harris, who, at least in terms of that movie, maybe the scene was like he only really had a couple of lines, but he was at least well known in the comedy and at least in like the hip hop scene over here for a number of years. But I, I mean, I felt bad because I didn't really know a lot of his work. I just remember him from this just very kind of funny scene in uh, this movie. And when he had passed away, like, I think around Christmas, and I was, it was really sad because it's like, I only knew him from this one thing. But at the same time, you're like, 
this guy had this one very meme-worthy quote, and now he's not there, but yet you still remember that line, and like I still recall it. Even like I make the reference to it almost on a daily basis. Yeah, was he maybe as prolific as let's say Bowie or Alan Rickman? It's like no, but yet these people still manage to find a way to connect with somebody. And I thought about. You know, in of myself, you know, with like I say, my podcast or, you know, the comics that you've worked on, you know, that thing of you never really know just how your work will affect somebody else. And I think that's why it's important that, you know, obviously we have fun with it, but I guess in a way are responsible with it because, you know, you never know who's being influenced by the stuff that we create. And it's kind of cool, but it's also kind of frightening. <laughs> yeah, I, that's a weird one, because for me. I always think the audience is just me. Uh, um, <laughs> I don't actually ever think anybody actually reads anything of my stuff. So it, it, it's a bit weird to hear sometimes of somebody going, oh, I read your stuff. It's like, really? You read my stuff? Okay, cool. You know, somebody else other than my mum. You know, not even <laughs> my wife's read my stuff. I, don't, I think she read 45, which it, I'm 45 this year. So I'm actually going to be the same age as my debut novel of the same name. So, um, and that was eight, nine years ago. So yeah, it it's it, it's weird. I don't I don't ever think many people read my stuff. So to me, I, I I don't I don't think I'm ever in that sort of sphere of of ever influencing people. Not like for the likes of um, I was with uh, Ian Livingston last night. Um, obviously, uh, the fighting fantasy uh, creator and Games Workshop and Tomb Raider. You know, great heritage there. And he was over at Brazil, and he had fans coming up to him that had. You know, loved the fighting fantasy brand and, and all the books like The Forest of Doom and Death Trap Dungeon. And one of the fans, um, uh, she had made him, handmade, the City of Thieves book in this sort of leather-bound, open-up special edition. All the little entries, when it, whenever you had an encounter with a, a creature, it was all in a little mini envelope that had a little uh, another letter that you would pull out and that would have all the, the, the action on it. And, um, and all the stats. And it was just, it was just this wonderful piece of work. It must have taken her a year to create, um, rather than, and, and you just look at it and go, wow, you know, she was affected so much by this one book or obviously the, the, the brand that she felt compelled to spend the entire year in her own time creating this one off special edition just to present to Ian when he came over to Brazil. You just look at that and go, wow, how do you even comprehend that? You know, I, I certainly couldn't, you know, I, I can't, I occasionally get, you know, the odd person coming up and going, oh, I've read so-and-so, but usually that's like a Facebook little mention or me sharing something out on Twitter occasionally and, and somebody coming back saying, oh, I read that, enjoyed it. So yeah, I, I you know, I've got a long way to go to, to sort of reach the, the, the dizzy heights of Ian Livingston and such. But even if you're not necessarily at like that particular level, but you know, your work's still out there. And I know it feels like a skipping record of saying it sometimes, but that takes a lot. And I, I know for some people, it's like, okay, this is just what I do. It's not a big deal. But in the last year, I've been thinking about all these people that we lost and people are still around. And you're saying to yourself, I'm probably never going to know what it's like to be at that certain level of notoriety. And that's fine because I don't necessarily want to be. But it is always a little like jarring in a way when you find out that someone, let's say, either like in your case, read something or someone listened to one episode and thought 
you know, I was checking out just stuff while I was driving or like, you know, uh, commuting or I'm like, wait, what? You sure? <laughs> like you said, yeah. like you, you you never know. And I'm like, I'm sure people are obviously checking it out because, well, I mean, you were still doing it, but yeah, I guess as a creator, I never get used to that. I, I think my holy grail is if I ever spot somebody actually reading one of my my books uh, or comics or, or whatever on the commute. If I spot that, then I think, yeah, okay, maybe this really happening, and and you know, maybe I, I've stepped up. You know, I, I looked at where I was. I did a little chart of how many issues I sort of produced in 2015 to 2016. And it was almost, you know, two and a half times the number of titles. You know, the first year I must have had about eight issues come out. This year it was getting on 16 to 20. Oh, wow. So for me, that was a good marker that I was going in the right direction. I don't think this year will be as prolific. Um, who knows? You know, I think if, if I get to 10, I'll be happy. I know for sure I'll have four, maybe another three come out. So 10's my marker. If I can get to 10, maybe 12, I'll I'll feel as if I'm still going heading in the right direction. And you never know. You know, we spoke about this off air and and how it's it's really still quite hard for creators unless you're, you know, you know in the top 5%, 10% to find work and continually be picked up or you know, there are so many good writers out there, so many good artists, and it, it's really through networking and perseverance and putting your neck on the, you know, out above or head above the parapet is a better analogy, um, and and trying your best to sort of say, hey, remember me? I can write, you know, <laughs> I did this. There's still that thing where I may have, you know, Sunflower, which I wrote with Mark Maluk, Ex Mortis with the Williams Brothers, and Six with George Pelicanos. And obviously, just calls and dark souls and, and overrun. You know, you may have all those titles behind you, but still, you know, it, it it's a fairly level playing field, and it's 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 down to you know publishers have have the pick of what they want to put out there, and you still have to work you know just as hard as somebody that hasn't um, had had the the breaks and hasn't potentially you know had their first comic and picked up or anything to get your next gig really you know it is it's really tough unless you're getting picked up by the likes of you know um, marvel or dc it's still a fight for everything something that i don't know if we ever really touched on um well let's see on episode 81 i had a gentleman uh josh Dahl, uh out of new england and i met him once in new york comic-con and on that episode we talked a little bit about the idea of comic book you know not even just as far as a community in an industry you know we talked a lot about that too but also a scene and by scene i mean like the climate and the area in which you're in because he was explaining to me that in that area they saw that there was a, a lack of a growing comic book scene at least as far as um independent books go you know, in that area. So I guess they've been working on plans of finding ways to get people excited. You know, the idea that, you know, the fans may already be there, but people may not be speaking to them directly. So maybe they're not as well known. So I guess they're working on how to pretty much get people in their area excited about comics. So that way it also helps the scene out. And I know I spoke to um, a lady, Leanne Hamilton. Um, she's out of Ireland and talking with her, realizing that there's been a kind of like a, a comic scene or like an art scene there that's sort of been rising. So I don't really know much as far as your area because um, you're out of um, England, right? Yeah. 
So I'm not really too familiar with the comic scene. You know, I've spoken to a few people from your area, but um, so what is the the comic climate out there? There is a, a good support for, for indie comics in the likes of like um, Gosh and um, OK Comics, Orbital and, and Forbidden Planet. You know, they, they're, they're very big on uh, supporting. I mean, Forbidden Planet, uh, bless them, they wholly supported uh, and got behind Overrun. Uh, the guy over there, Rob uh, Pontefract, was uh, a strong advocate for it. And basically, uh, I gave them the exclusive to sell so that, you know, they've got copies of it. Um, and, um, you know, it, if it wasn't for him getting behind it, we would have probably have just been selling it online where possible. You know, I, I, I probably don't know the market enough in terms of what other people are doing because, weirdly, because I've been working with 451 for nearly two and a half, three years, my concentration, my sole concentration has been on working with the Americans uh, market. And obviously that then spins into how into the UK. And I know that any title that comes out on 451, certainly Forbidden Planet have been picking it up. And I've been going down lunch times. Every time an issue comes out, I'm down at Forbidden Planet signing their copies, tweeting about it, and then going, going back. I think the problem you've got is that there's so much out there. And um, it's hard to pick what you want to read. There's a set audience that is growing slowly, I think, but there's a lot of good content out there and a lot of good publishers. And ultimately, it's down to PR. And if you can PR yourself more and, and get support the publisher just as much as uh, if you've got a publisher uh, for an indie comic or, you know, if it's just you, then it's it's a matter of, you know, talking to the people like yourself and getting on podcasts. I think the key to a successful indie comic is putting yourself out there and sort of giving the illusion that you are more than just a little indie comic um, and that you should, you know, people should take notice of you. Um, that means that the creators, unfortunately, have to do a lot of homework and, and do a lot of PR themselves. It's similar to what you have to do with image. Um, you know, the image deal comes in ultimately they are putting their logo on your book but you have to do the pr for that now you've got you've got to have image behind you so you know you you're going to be taken more you know people are going to take notice of you but you know the responsibility lies with you to make sure that your book does well so i think as an independent creator um, and i've created my own comic you have to create your own fan base and allow that to you know seat with within your fans and and hopefully with luck it, it does well where we made a mistake on overrun was i think we went too early on our pr so we led with a what was called a long tail and i think in hindsight we should have gone with a shorter punch and really hit them with an activity maybe two three months before get everybody absolutely chomping at the bit for it this is the must-have comic and i think we would have probably sold a lot more, a lot quicker, and a lot more people would have been talking about it. And unfortunately, I think um, you live and learn with these things. Right. Um, it was my first, my first indie comic. It got rave reviews. Everyone absolutely loved it. Yet, I, I feel it's one of the comics that slipped through 2016, and we released early in February. And I think by Christmas, everybody had forgotten about it, which is a great shame because um, I think it deserved more. But who knows? You know maybe 217 somebody will come along and go, actually that that needs to be reprinted and we'll take it off you and we'll give it the love that it it deserves and the second chance to uh, show it to a wider audience 
I'd imagine it's definitely a bit of a learning experience because, you know, it's, you try it, it works great if it doesn't work or finding ways to then take what you've learned from then. But, you know, the difference is you've been doing stuff with 451, you're working with uh, some other publishers on other books and you have Overrun. You now saying, you know, in hindsight that maybe what you did with over, um, Overrun could have been a little bit different, but yet that just means now with that and the work you've done and knowing what you know, that of course the next time out, you know, it, it could be a completely different thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the way that we approached execution-wise of, of the material is no different. I'm working on Freeway Fighter at the moment and um, with um, Titan Comics, and I'm working very closely with, with the, the Titan editing team, but ultimately I'm putting that comic together. So Titan have, you know, a very hands-off and uh, are very glad of the fact because, you know, I come from a design background. I, I I put together the Just Cause comic, I put together the Dark Souls comic, I put together Overrun. These are, are what I like to consider very beautiful looking comics and, and are very highly professionally done. You know, one of the comics was, it was one of the most professional looking, certainly for Overrun, one of the most professional looking indie comics ever produced. I know how to put a good comic together. And that's proof of the pudding in the fact that Titan have, have gone, you know what, hands off here, you know what you're doing. Just give us the pages and the and the cover and the back cover, um, and we'll do the rest. Yeah, that's a big deal, dude. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'd like to think of myself. You know, I, you know, I'm not just a comic writer. I am, you know, I, I'm a producer in, in as much that we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Free Will Fighter and the weird way that, that that sort of happened. But certainly, you know, if if we look at Freeway Fighter, it was an idea that I had to develop. I had to approach him, and uh, you know, we talked about it. I got his blessing gave him the script, which he loved. And then it was a case of, okay, can't get the money raised. So um, I'll talk about it a little bit and try and maybe, you know, you know, you know see if I can capture a, a publisher that says, you know, I want to get this produced. Actually, what happened was that we got a guy called uh, Matt Mestracci, who um, was a, I guess he's an angel investor who came in and basically gave us enough money up front to produce a four issue series um, i mean that's 80 pages and in the way that page prices are you know even if you did the maths at 200 dollars a page or whatever you, you know how much that at least he's put into this so you know he's he was a, a massive fighting fantasy fan believed enough in the interview that i had done with a, a book that was called you are the hero an interview that i'd done with jonathan green that he basically got in touch on twitter and said that comic that you've tried to get done, I think I can help you. And I was like, nah, nah, this is going to be a joke. I thought it was some sort of like scam. <laughs> but weirdly, he turned out to be the greatest guy I know because he invested his own money into my idea. And I then had to go back to him and say, I can make this happen. I don't have a publisher yet, but I can put the team together. So, you know, having worked with Simon, having worked with Jim Campbell, having worked with... Uh, Leno Grady on the colours and Jim Campbell obviously does the lettering. I was like, I know my team. I, you know, even before we're going anywhere, this is the team I want. And those guys have done an amazing job. So I had the team in place. I had the script sold. Jonathan Green came in as a sort of a, an editor and, and, and consultant on it because he, he knows the fighting fantasy brand uh, just as well as Ian and um, sort of made sure that I wasn't destroying the canon. Uh, <laughs> And, um, yeah, we, we had a comic and we just, 
we pressed the button. We didn't have a publisher. We were going, yeah, now what? Let, let's, you know, initially we were going to kickstart it, but I said, no, we're going to find a publisher. And so I started to basically contact people. And it was finally that through, I mean, I had a couple of good, really good bites from, I would say, you know, some very big publishers. And Titan was one of them. And they came in and were like, yep, we know your stuff from Dark Souls and uh, Just Cause and um, obviously 451. And we love Simon's work and we love the, the brand. I was really fortunate that the brand manager working on the project, a guy called uh, Chris Thompson, um, is a absolutely huge fan of fighting fantasy. And as soon as he saw the project, he was like, I want that project. I want to, I want to manage that project. And Chris has been great, um, as Will and uh, Andrew uh, in the editing team and, and Will on the press front. And we've made it happen. And I continue to produce it. You know, the um, Titan are there as they have the final nod on it. And I just send them every a couple of days a new updated PDF and saying, yeah, I've got a couple more pages in, got a couple more inks. But at the moment, I'm running the show and, you know, I'm checking with everybody. I'm, I'm, I'm the, the conduit between the publisher, between Ian, between the art workers, um, you know, between Simon and, and the letterers. Uh, and everything's coming through me, which is great. And I'm in my happy place. This is this is cool. I've written the script. It almost sounds like I've I've written the theme tune. I've, I've sung the theme <laughs> tune. Uh, but yeah, it it, um, it it does feel a little bit like that. But you know, uh, hopefully that's that can only you know put me in good stead when when hopefully everybody sees the final product. They go actually that was a really well put together comic and, and an enjoyable romp as well. And pays homage to a great great brand that you know fighting fantasy had a huge effect on me in my childhood and right. probably on the course of dungeons and dragons sorry I've, I've gone on a little bit there no that's that's awesome and i appreciate that and i think as should you because as we're going on in years we're now seeing that in order to really kind of make a mark i mean some people are lucky that they can you know do this one thing and that's it yeah. that's what they're known for and that's great that's awesome but I feel like people who are smart enough to realize that you kind of have to know a little bit of everything. Yeah. Even if you're not necessarily a complete expert at it, but you kind of have to know a little bit of every aspect of the business, I think, in order to really make it. Like I said, you've done design work, you do lettering, you do editing, and obviously do writing. And it's like your work is showing that that quality is what's really important. And you say to yourself, okay, I mean, is Overrun necessarily like this huge book that everybody knows? Maybe not necessarily, but yet the work on that book and the other stuff I've read from you, you know, even the 451 stuff, that takes real work, that takes, you know, real ethic, and, you know, that stuff comes through. So that means then, as you continue to build the body of work and people see the quality and you're saying to yourself, all right, so not only is this guy good, though, but also he can deliver. And I think that is something that, more people will realize is the consistency and yeah. the quality of, you know, cause yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who could maybe do, you know, dozens of comics or what have you in a given year. But if the work doesn't stand up, then over time, it, it's not going to really matter that much. So, I mean, but I think that's a, a really good point that you made is that, you know, the quality is there and the work's there. So, I mean, I think as you go along, I think you're kind of well on your way here. Yeah, I hope so. And, you know, I appreciate you sort of reaffirming that. You never know, you know, you are a little bit of an island when it comes to creating stuff. You only have potentially your team and maybe a publisher who are sort of saying, yeah, this is the greatest thing. 
but the real test is obviously when, when it's released to the masses and you you got to see what they think and hope that you know that they become that that second wave of pr you know the first wave of pr will be you uh, the second wave of pr will be your fans um, and they're the ones that are going to sort of carry it. You know, you can only take it so far, but it's going to be your fans. They're going to be talking about it. They're going to be saying to their mates, you've got to read this. This is fantastic. You know, look at this. You know, this is an amazing comic. This is just as good as, you know, a Marvel comic or a DC comic. We should be reading this. You know, this is the cool stuff. And, and you know, you've got to rely and hope that, you know, your baby, as you release it, um, <laughs> caught in that little wave of, of, of self-generating PR and the fans carry it through. So, you know, you know, a lot of it is luck, but you know, you can't do any wrong by getting it into a, a really good state and, and hoping that knowing that you've done the best you can and it, what will be, will be the rest of it will be down to luck and, and, and public perception. And I kind of wish I had that connection to fighting fantasy that it seems that a lot of people have. I mean, I remember hearing about it like little by little over the years, but I guess I'm that's that part of fandom that I never got into, and not for you know lack of trying, but it's just you know there's but so many hours in a day, so you know when I was researching it, I'm like, oh, I didn't realize this was kind of a thing. So I'm like, all right, knowing that you're involved somehow, you're like, all right, okay, I know Andy's work. Andy's a good dude, so let me check that out. And I think that's you know like that sort of word of mouth and making those connections, saying like, okay. Let's say, I don't know, someone's doing like a Bruce Lee comic. And it's like, I don't know. I'm like, well, you know, Bruce Lee's cool. But then it's like, oh, hey, this person's working on it that I know from other things. And, you know, you start kind of connecting the dots. And word of mouth is still a very good way of advertising. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I, I, I think that, you know, hopefully it looks like there's a pretty good fan base attached to this. That I, I think it'll definitely help in terms of pushing it. Well, yeah, I hope so as well. Thank you. I mean, if it ends up that it makes you want to read the game book, then certainly from, from my point of view, uh, that's job done. If it makes you want to read more comics as well, based in that universe, then that's a bonus. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's the long-term plan. There is a strategy there. You know, this isn't been done as, as a bit of a fan win. This is done as I have a driven goal to make this brand just as popular as Dungeons and Dragons comics is or, or uh, Walking Dead or something like that. You know, th this has got a lot of heritage to it. And there are many universes within uh, the fighting fantasy brand. And there's many stories and many locations and, and many sort of popular cult books that, that certainly the hardcore fans will recognize and enjoy and um if if it appears in the comic form so for me if it, if fighting fantasy does well and there's such an uptake that we can do more of of that world great if you know the ultimate goal is to do more of that and then pick a new title and do it like the death trap dungeon you know and then just grow from that and, and grow more and more because i think the the universe is so rich the fan base is there um we just got to hope that it does well enough to to sort of self-perpetuate. Now, a question I do have to ask with this book, I mean, I know you, you're not, you know, can't say a whole lot about it, but would this be, you consider this like a good jumping on point for people who, you know, may not have had like this long, like affinity for the other uh, property? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, fighting fantasy, there's, I would say the, the sword and sorcery side, which, you know, sets the place within a set world, 
that has recurring cities and different parts that you visit. Now, with um, Freeway Fighter, this is like a one-off set to a sort of a, a dystopian future, post-apocalyptic, and has nothing really to do with the other game books. So they they didn't necessarily always follow each other. So it's not a problem that this comic now follows um, Freeway Fighter or, or sits within that universe because there was only ever one game book for it. And the actual story itself leads neatly into the beginning of the game book. So you're not going to ruin anything by reading it. And if anything, it's going to give you a little bit more background. When you play the game book, you start off with um, the interceptor car and you, you basically drive it to an oil refinery to pick up some petrol uh, and trade for it. And you've got to go across you know, it's a, a, a desert wasteland. For me, the greatest question was, what is this souped-up car doing in a like a little little sanctuary community town? How did that end up there in a post-apocalyptic event? So, what we have is uh, is is a prequel, but it's an origin story that has its own journey, uh, and it's about the car just as much as it is about the driver. And you know, it it, it plays homage to a lot of the setups and, and characters and familiar little nods that you would know if you was a fan of uh, Freeway Fighter, you would you would perhaps recognise certain little aspects. So we, we've kept little things in there, little Easter eggs, but it is a contained story that, you know, you could read one to four and feel as if you've got something cool out of it and with enough intrigue to, to entice uh, further issues if there was an uptake. Now you said four issues, so this is a mini, right? This is a mini, yeah. Okay. So it it's it's eighty issues. Uh, sorry, eighty pages. Uh, eighty issues. I wish it was eighty issues. Um, <laughs> eighty pages and four issues. I think it comes out in late May or mid May, May seventeenth. I think it is somewhere around there. Um, so it obviously previews will be sort of March time. So I'm I'm hoping that come that time that we would get a good idea of numbers and and how it's going to perform. Right. Well, best of luck with that, man. I hope it really works out. And, you know, it, it sounds really exciting. I don't know. I'm biased that way, though, because <laughs> it's just, you know, cars, post-apocalyptic. I'm like, all right, I, I could do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a great origin story there. There's a lot of car action because you've got the people are always going to compare it to Mad Max. And um, I love Mad Max to death and anything post-apocalyptic. I'm, I'm straight in. And, you know, I saw Mad Max twice. You know, got the DVD. I will probably buy the the Chrome version, and you know, I, I I love stuff like that. But we wanted, or I wanted, when when sort of pitching this, I wanted to do something that was slightly a slightly different take for Freeway Fighter in the new movie, obviously, which was which was fantastic and, and and beautiful. You don't see as much car, and to me, I always I always wanted the car, and I wanted so much more sort of things going on with the car and, and action scenes with the car. And obviously Mad Max doesn't really deliver on uh, Max's car. So for me, I wanted to do a story where, yeah, that, that car has a, has a journey, has a bit of a, you know, it starts high, then goes through hell and you're sort of there with it. And it's the relationship between the driver, Bella, um, you know, and I've got this female um, racing car driver called Bella that, um, she's it's her car it's her relationship that she has with this car i mean she's even talking to it 
because um, I talk to my car sometimes when I go along, I go, come on, come on, give me a little bit more. Um, and, and, and certainly in my mind, in a post-apocalyptic setting, if you've been with your car for a little while, it, it, it's not a car anymore. It's a bit of an entity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of miss that in, in Mad Max. They, they do worship them as gods and stuff, um, but perhaps you don't really see that with, with uh, Max's car. And I, I kind of thought, yeah, there, there's something there. I think that, that w- I would love to have developed that more. So I, I, that's what I did with Freeway Fighter. I went, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have this relationship where, you know, she's talking to the car a, a lot more and, you know, you really feel that she and, and it are one. And, you know, it, it's their, it's their journey, not just her journey. It's not just her story. It, it's, it's the car as well and, and, you know, what it goes through and what happens in the end, really. So without giving too much away. So, yeah, that was important to me. I think that really sort of differentiates us to where sort of Mad Max sits. And certainly I think it's a little bit more contemporary in as much that it, it, it's so near future that it's not too bizarre. Right. Um, I always felt the Freeway Fighter, the game book, there were elements that still dragged it back to our contemporary time, whereas Max always seemed to be pushing it further away, pushing it further away. Especially in a new film, when when you know you get to the swamps and the you know the Greenlands or whatever it was called, um, and you could see all these swamps with with you know these men with, with huge sticks going through it, sort of swamp squ- squatting, that always pushed it you know years ahead for me. And and you know we're we're talking like another fifty sixty years in the future. So certainly I felt that if we brought it back to those days, just it, almost like The Walking Dead you know, the fallout days of, of this sort of dystopian future and how would you survive? So yeah, for me, there are marked points of difference that I hope set it aside and be a nice, something different to, to somebody going, Oh, it's just a Mad Max clone, which I don't think it is. No, I definitely don't think it is, but <laughs> like our family, like we still like would name our cars and <laughs> like, you're right. Like it's, <laughs> there's always that weird connection to them where, I mean, considering that how much dependent we are of them, it's hard not to kind of almost personify it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think I'd touch upon that quite nicely. <laughs> I remember my dad had this old car that after sometimes turning it off, it would start up on its own. And uh, my parents used to call it Christine. So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, that's probably a good comparison. Um, yeah, it, it, it doesn't drive itself in Freeway Fighter, but uh, certainly, you know, I'd like to think it's got a bit of personality. Very cool. I really can't wait to check this out. You said that was what late May, right? Yeah, it'll it'll be out. I think seventeenth of May. Yeah, around about then. Before you go, something that we had talked a little bit about at the end of the last episode, episode fifty-three. Um, we kind of gone on a little bit about some of the comedies um because i remember what was the one you had me watch which i did check out a lot of it on youtube since then i was like i think it was car share oh car share yeah was that good did you try it i did enjoy that a lot which by the way thank you for that recommendation cool i'm glad you enjoyed yeah because i'm like how did i miss this I, I went back and started watching the old alan partridges just because they were on and also um oh what's the other one in between us can't believe I missed in between us. I mean, that is a little bit near the knuckle. Some of the stuff they get up to. <laughs> but, yeah, I do, love, I do love my comedy and black books as well, which which I absolutely love. But yeah, I'm glad you caught up with Carshare. They're making a Carshare too. Get out of here. Yeah, they're going back to it. So they're, they're probably in filming or post production on that now. 
So next time we're on, probably going, yeah, it's out. You need to watch it. Yeah, I, I love anything that makes me laugh generally is, um, uh, you know, a big tick in my book. So comedy is uh, is mandatory in my house. I generally take the piss out of most things my wife does. Um, <laughs> I, think we, I think we went to see Rogue One. And, you know, to bless her, she was falling asleep every five minutes. I mean, really? She, she, yeah, she works hard. She works hard during the day. And so, oh, you know, okay. let's go down. She's any excuse, she's falling asleep. And I was through the entire movie. Fair enough. It was the second time I'd, I'd watched it. Um, and I loved that movie, by the way. I thought it was a very, very well done. Um, though one big bugbear in it, and I'll come to that in a minute, which has got a spoiler alert. So, you know, just I, I will say spoiler alert at some point. But, you know, I was waking her up every five minutes. And when old uh, Pete Cushing's character, I can't remember his name. Was oh, it? Uh, Tarkin? Yeah, that's the one. Um, he came on. Uh, she looked at him and went, God, he's looking really old. And I was like, he's dead. <laughs> this is a this is a CG, um, you know. The, the, you know this is computer generated, and he, he's not really alive. He's dead. And she went, oh, I was going to say he would have been. You know, I, you know, it didn't make much sense because he looked exactly like he did in Star Wars. And um, you know, it was just one of those moments where it was just like, yeah, okay. And I just you know at that point just took the Mickey out of her. Um, and so yeah, you, you generally if you say anything or mispronounce anything in the house or, or make a mistake in, in terminology, you generally have the, the, the piss ripped out of you. So I, I love a bit, of, a bit of comedy. And the spoiler alert for me, which I, you know, Force Awakens, absolutely love. So, you know, here we go. Spoiler alert. I was so annoyed that the pilot died the way he did. I felt that they should have, as they were escaping and they had plenty of time to get to the beach they could have at least gone to the landing pod to see if there was a shuttle to get off the planet. Bear in mind that the force field gate was down. Um, They could have gone to the landing pad, looked for a shuttle. I mean, they've done it before and perhaps seen the pilot coming towards him and gone, no, but here comes the pilot. He's going to save us. And then he gets blown up out of the sky. At which point they were like, no, no, we really are in the, you know, we've got no hope now. You know, we are going to die. And then, you know, walk off to the to the beach and to be eradicated by the the the, the um, quake. But that for me was the the moment. Um, is this the point where you said you haven't actually seen the film yet, and uh, I've just ruined it for you? No, I have seen it. Okay. If I did, I didn't mean to. I guess I'm so used to you know some spoilers and things, but no, I did finally get a chance to catch that one. Loved it, by the way. Good. Yeah, I, I thought it was brilliant. I you know I, I loved her character and. You know, I, I love the Dirty Dozen vibe in it. But to me, I felt that the pilot's death could have been a little bit more, would have made more sense if he was coming in to save them on a ship. And then they, you saw them and they were like, okay, there are no ships for us to escape. Therefore, we're going to walk on the beach and have a big hug. Right. I think the thing that I dislike about that movie is, so it's, it's very laughable and nonsensical when I think about it, is the fact that, the characters were so well done. I really enjoyed it. But yet, just by sheer definition of we already kind of know how that story planned out, you're not going to see them again. Yeah. So unless they do like, uh, I don't know, some sort of like Rogue One short film, like some sort of prequel thing of some of the side characters and how they got together. And maybe there'll be some stuff in a deleted scene in a Blu-ray. But 
it just sucked because as soon as everybody showed up and as soon as I started identifying with everyone, I already knew for a fact that nobody's getting out of this alive. Yeah, which is a shame because there was some, you know, there was some really interesting characters there. Certainly deserved a little bit more screen time beyond, you know, Rogue One. Maybe they'll do a Rogue Point Five. Who knows? <laughs> Oh, I'm so glad you got to that joke because I was thinking about it. I'm yeah. like, do I want to? Do I want to make it? It's like I'm so glad you picked up the slack. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, no problem. That's why I'm around. Oh, we've basically proven that for the most part. I mean, yeah, it's tied into the um the original trilogy and just Star Wars saga itself. But you know, you told a story that's outside of the typical saga with the Skywalkers kind of thing. Yeah, and I I love the ending, and I think they could have even made more of that sort of passing of the information data disk or whatever it was with the map on it. Again, one bugbear was, why didn't Darth Vader with the last guy go, hang on a sec, I'm going to force pull that little data disk. You know, I can move bits of huge bits of metal and spaceships and doors and stuff with the force, but I'm going to bring that little bit of data chip back, you know, from, from being passed through the door. Um, certainly he took his eye off the ball there. You know, if, if you're going to score <laughs> for, for you know, your brief was to get that bit of data, not chop everybody up into little bits. Um, you, you know, that was it. You were you were supposed to do one job, <laughs> and you pulled <laughs> that. Um, but uh, but certainly, you know, that whole sort of passing of, of the flame moment, the passing of the torch. Uh, you know, that information getting further and further. They could have done a little bit longer with that, and it would have been beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Because I thought that was a great scene. I would have loved to have seen that scene. You know, lots of people dying, somebody else getting out and dying and, and throwing it to the next guy and the next guy putting it into, you know, uh, a shoot and it's going down. You know, it, it just would have been nice a little bit longer there just to just to give that a little bit a little bit more drama. But, you know, all in all, I absolutely loved it. I know there was a lot of commentary and there still is for a lot of people who feel that, which, you know, I'm not going to get into the, the rants. Because, you know, a lot of people are like, you know, there wasn't Star Wars being made for a very long time, and now we're getting a lot of it. So, you know, there's a lot of people who feel that now it's kind of reached oversaturation. But I'm like, I don't think it was the number of Star Wars movies is the issue. But as long as they're decent, like, yeah, was not sure what Rogue One was going to be about. But once that first trailer came out, and I know it wasn't necessarily the best edited one, I was like, okay, I'm sold because it's like, this is familiar, but I don't know this part of the universe. Yeah. Like, this really felt like the first story that really made sense of the actual war itself because we see the very start of it, and in the original trilogy, we see kind of like the tail end of it. Yeah. Being the first movie kind of set like right in the middle of that outside of the animated series, I'm like, it was gritty. And, and, you know, I know that's kind of a buzzword now, but it really made Star Wars feel rugged. Like this wasn't just about people with lightsabers or, you know, like you really felt like there was some legit sacrifices being made in this conflict. Yeah, absolutely. I think for, you know, if you, if you look at it from afar, you know, it's a gritty war story and the rebels, aren't necessarily the good guys in this. You know, they're doing some really dubious things and, you know, they're having to compromise their own morals to do what needs to be done to get the job done, which means, you know, people die and sometimes people die because of them. And I think that, if anything, gives it a little bit more sort of grounded reality, more so than when you look at, if you compare that to, say, you know, uh, Phantom Menace or any of the other ones, you know, you're looking at a fantasy yarn, but if you actually look at Rogue One, you're actually going, this, this is, this is a gritty war story. And, you know, take away 
the spaceships and the, and the blasters. What you know, you've got you've got deep intrigue. You've got you know two sides. You know, putting everything on the line, type of thing. You know, it's it, it's it's a great story. Like I say, a couple of little bugbears, but you know, God, I, I, if they can keep on producing stuff like that and um, the Force Awakens, it, it will reignite a new generation. Um, and I, you know, I could quite happily. You know, I only love the only thing I liked in the prequels was um, the Darth Maul fight. Um, that's the only thing that I would have probably saved from all three of them. Um, the rest, I would. I, I don't really care for because it's, it's going to be weird saying talking about prequels and I've just written a prequel for a freeway fighter, but it's a part of a prequel. I didn't really necessarily need to know. Right. I kind of liked it just being star Wars. And obviously with rogue one now, that's even better. I think you could probably jump into the entire series from rogue one. And I don't think you even need to know what happened in the prequels. It's going to be hard to see this series because, well, Harrison Ford is essentially written out of it, and we've, you know, lost Carrie Fisher. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and it's just, it's going to be very hard to sort of watch these movies now. I haven't really watched Star Wars uh, since she passed away, so I don't, you know, I don't know. It hasn't really hit me yet. Yeah. And I know it's going to at some point, but at least they're in good hands as far as I really do trust that they will not only continue to tell really good stories that they built, but also, you know, honor her in a way. Cause I know everybody's now wondering what's going to happen with episode nine yeah. um, in her absence, but I'm sure whatever they do, they'll find a way to tastefully pay the respects to such an iconic character and actress yeah. and writer. And I mean, granted, I mean, she did so much that I wasn't even aware of. So Hopefully, you know, they'll at least uh, pay her tribute and, you know, do it respectfully. Absolutely. You know, she, she again, one of those sort of iconic actresses, actors that had a huge influence on, on growing up and, you know, an inspiration to many, particularly women, you know, young women um, at, at the time that, that saw that, you know, you could be the hero just as much as the guys and do, you know, right. fly spaceships and, you know, shoot stormtroopers um it's not always it doesn't always have to be the um, you know luke doing it or hand she's she's just as tough so she brought a lot back in the day obviously when when we were watching this uh, as as sort of impressionable kids and yeah you know she's gonna be greatly missed it, it was a shock and yeah another one to add to a, a very terrible year but um you know hopefully the you know she's she's her legacy will live on and I think it will. And I mean, it even influenced me in a way, because as far as her whole rescue and even the whole time that she's captive in episode four, she's obviously, you know, kind of held against her will, but she's not helpless. Yeah. You know, they could have played that anyway, but, you know, I'm sure Carrie's like, you know what? No, we're not doing it that way. Like, we're going to. Into the shit. Bye, just... boy. <laughs> yeah. And I was about to say, that's my favorite Carrie Fisher moment in general because as they're escaping, you know, Luke comes in, he does the, oh, I'm here to rescue you. You know, she essentially, as he opens the door, she's already making fun of him. Yeah. You know, she's just like, uh, wait, who the hell are you? And, you know, obviously she hears Ben Kenobi's like, all right, let's go. So they're in the garbage chute, you know, Han and Luke are bickering back and forth. They're doing what they're doing. And she literally just snatches the blaster and then just starts going off. And I'm like, that's amazing. Like, you know, that story could have been told anyway, but she pretty much rescued them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the three of them together, you know, there's just such a good, there was such a good chemistry at that point. And the fact yeah. that she, she wasn't intimidated by these two whatsoever, you know, I'm, I'm sure in, in real life, just as much as in the movies, but 
certainly, you know, she's she shows why she's such a strong character and why she's a general by the end of it. So, yeah, uh, a really a sad loss, really. It was a, a real blow, especially being a, like, a lifelong Star Wars fan. Um, yeah. and, 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 of course, Kenny going um, earlier in the year. That's right. Oh man, I com- I completely forgot about Kenny Baker. I'm like, yeah. man, see now now we're starting to get now starting to get a little sad. Well, well the the really weird thing is that Kenny Baker is my wife's best friend's husband's uncle. Wow. So um, yeah, work that one out. So um, <laughs> I, I I had given them a Star Wars poster to sign that they had had for say a year, and I actually managed to get it off them signed by Kenny. And he signed some other stuff for me before as well, probably about two weeks before he passed. And we were down in Devon because that's where they're from. And I remember giving the post the, the poster. And by the time we come back, and a couple of weeks later, he had passed on, and it was just like, oh my god! And you know, I, I just remember them saying that they had to go to the funeral and everything. And yeah, it was that, that was like the first blow. And then and then the body blow comes in at the end of the year. So. I mean, again, Kenny, I mean, he was in Time Bandits as well. So, you know, he's not just R2-D2. You know, he's had other roles. Another guy that had a great life. Very, very colorful character. Yeah, we said at the beginning of the show, you never really know who you influence with your work. You know, I'm sure for a lot of people, they probably don't think about that as they're doing it much. Like, I'm sure when you're working on your comics, you don't see it. Or even, let's say, with this show, I don't see it. But I figured if even if one person's listening, you know, I I feel like at least it helped out in some way. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Surely, you know, you've got more than just one listener. I would hope you got more than one listener. I sincerely hope so, too. (laughs) You know, but... At the same time, it's like, I, I just feel like it's worth it, you know? And I hope that in your comic creating endeavors that, you know, things work out. And it looks like they're, you're already on your way. But, again, we never see these things as they're happening. You know, sometimes it's always in retrospect. And you look back and like, oh, shoot, like, hey, that happened. Yeah. You know, or, hey, you know, we did this thing. So, you know, you're just doing the work as you often do. And then you, you step back later on and you're able to kind of just see, you know, the work that you've done, but you know, best of luck and, you know, definitely everybody check out freeway fighter overrun and definitely, you know, even your, uh, your 451 stuff. I mean, six, you know, Mortis. We always, I forgot to mention X Mortis earlier. Thank you. Uh, red dog. Oh shoot. And sunflower, sunflower and red dog. Like, I mean, those two, I really dig especially. So again, I'm glad that you're involved in those and, you know, Cool. Anytime you want to come back, um, I'll feel free to, you know, hopefully by then we won't have as much sad Star Wars news. <laughs> yeah. You know, hopefully you know, we'll be asked going, God, wasn't, wasn't that, you know, episode eight, wasn't that amazing? Um, and we'll <laughs> talk about that, but yeah, it, you know, it's always a pleasure, uh, coming on the show and, and, and chatting with you. Uh, and I'm quite glad that we found something else to talk about, uh, other than comics. We, we've, we've found, you know, we've moved on, our repertoire has moved on from, British sitcoms to uh, Star Wars now. So um, <laughs> we've done those. Next, I'll, uh, it'll probably be Middle Earth. Let's see what see what you think of Lord of the Rings. And, and we'll, we'll... Wait, hold on. When can you come back? See, like, shoot, you should have just... Oh, are you kidding me? Oh, oh see, you got to start with that, Andy, because, oh my gosh, I'm like, I... Well, I mean, the books, the movies, which one you want to talk about? Because <laughs> that one's hard for me to discuss without getting choked up, because, well, yeah, Lord of the Rings, that... If I can say it, that's my shit, you know that's. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I, funny enough, my best friend is like a like a Lord of the Rings sort of I would say, lore meister. 
I mean, he knows everything. He, I mean, he used to, he and I used to um, play uh, Merp, uh, Middle Earth role playing all the time. Wow. Um, he, he was basically my, my conduit into that world. And, and, and um, you know, I could ask him anything. I could say, what river runs from, you know, Mordor through, um, I don't know, Rohan and stuff. He'll go, right, that's the river, this, this, this. And it would go through the, this mountain. It would go through the West. I mean, he could tell me anything. And it would, it would then tell me, go on to tell me who died in that river and and what year that was, what age that was. Uh, I mean, he, he really is a, a bit of a, a law smith when it comes to Lord of the Rings. All right. So that's that's it. I'm going to say this right now. And I'm going to basically say it publicly. So that way I commit to it. Next time we're on, we're doing Lord of the Rings. That That's that, that's how this is going to go down. We're, we're going to do that shit. Absolutely. Because I'm right now I'm in the middle of rewatching the, the movies, like the extended editions. And I haven't read the books in a while. But I know it always takes me a while, but I, I don't feel like my girlfriend's going to have to literally see me, like, keep drying my eyes by the time I get to Return of the King. <laughs> <laughs> see, the thing for me is I, I try not to read the books. Um, they, one, they're just so thick that I just look at it and just, it just defeats me before I even start. It's like it's like War and Peace. It's like me picking up War and Peace and attempting to read that. Um, and I, I was just like, you know what? I, I, I used to watch the, um, the, the cartoon edition. Um, God, you know, the rotary rotoscope stuff, yeah, uh, which I loved, you know, then I had Dennis, basically my mate who, um, uh, would then recount the entire story. So I said, well, so what happened when they went to Moria and, and uh, they, he would tell me the whole thing. So basically I had the whole thing verbally given to me. Um, and, um, that's how I got my knowledge from it. Um, so it's very piecemeal. And then obviously when the films come out, it was like, brilliant. I, you know, I can now put the audio history that I've, I've learned with the uh, the visual history and um you know it's not 100% correct but you know I still really really enjoyed them so um yeah I, I do love that world and I I I certainly as as a merp player I do like sort of playing that different characters within that 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 realm Lord of the Rings the book it's it's kind of a slog especially the first half of fellowship and I had originally read it in high school I think it was after two towers came out or maybe a little bit beforehand but I started reading the books pretty much through like junior and senior year of high school and the first half of fellowship it's so hard to get through because Tolkien does not you know he's he's definitely not known for being uh brief you know you definitely get into everything yeah you know each blade of grass tells a story and i'm saying to myself you know what i've never read a book like this before this is kind of hard to get through but you know what i i want to see how this ends but then by the time you get to frodo and sam and mordor now you realize why he explained what the shire was like because now they're essentially in hell itself and it's like, you can't understand the gravity of what they're dealing with if you don't know what it's like on the opposite side. And I'm literally like, Tolkien, you goddamn genius. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, you made me care about these trees and how that, even by the time they got back home in, like, the scouring of the Shire, which I wish they had kept in a movie, it's maddening to have to read it all, but, oh, like... It's hard to even talk about those later chapters in Return of the King because it's really just gripping stuff. So, yeah, next time you're on, we got to talk Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And I feel like, you know what? I'll make that a point. You know, we'll probably get into Freeway Fighter because I'm sure by that time it'll be out. But I'm going to put that on paper so that way I commit to just it. Just don't test me on any of the names, any of the locations. I, I just, oh, you know, the- I know bits of it. You know, it, I just really enjoy it. You know, like I say, it, it's one of those right. things that... You know, I, I understand Gondor. I understand 
uh, Aragorn, I understand the Dunedain and, and the Rangers and all of that, that, that stuff and Rohan and, you know, oh, God, there's just so much. I'd have to go back to my Lord of the Rings uh, Merp book and just go back through all the characters going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, the Urukai and, you know, <laughs> you know if, you, if you sort of go back to me and sort of say, okay, so you need to roll up a character that's a half-elf animist. Um, I'll be there. I'll be going, yeah, 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 okay, I remember what I've got to do here. Um, oh, I'm not going to geek out on you that hard. I'll tell you what, we'll stick to the movies because I think that's a good <laughs> – it's been a long time since I read the books too, so I couldn't necessarily sit there and try to like, you know, quiz you and you know, rake you over the coals over what you know, and what you don't know. No, that's right. we'll stick to the movies because I could go on about that for quite a while. That's that's good. Well, movies is good. I'm in a happy place with movies. Um, <laughs> don't, don't don't quiz me on the books. All right, but before we go, please let everybody know where they can find out more about you online. So if anything, you want to like social networking or anything else you want to plug before we close out. No problem. You can find anything about um, Overrun at uh, www.weareoverrun.com. It's also available at uh, Forbidden Planet and also Jetpack Comics in the US. If you want to catch me, I'm usually on Twitter. That's usually the best place. Um, at Andy, A-N-D-I, Ewington, E-W-I-N-G-T-O-N. And, you know, come by, follow me, say hi. I generally follow back. I generally post a lot of uh, music suggestions for writing um, and complain about, you know, my, my terrible travel in on Southern Rail. Yeah, which, oh my God, dude, that seems like, and I'm not complaining towards you, but I feel bad. It seems like nothing goes right on a daily basis. How does anybody get to work? I uh, know it, it, it is terrible. Put it this way: I've I've done some memes and made Buzzfeed. I made t- I made a Buzzfeed comment, um, uh, sort of like the twenty-one bad things about Southern Rail, and I actually appeared <laughs> twice. Two of my memes <laughs> on that on that. If you look it up, if you look at like uh, Buzzfeed twenty twenty or twenty-one uh, worst things about traveling on Southern Rail, you will find two of my memes that that I created. I like generating memes occasionally. Um, a little known fact, I created the Chuck Norris versus North Korea meme when North Korea was threatening to nuke uh, the US. I did a little meme of, of um, uh, Kim basically looking through uh, some binoculars, that famous shot where he's looking with his generals across the battlefield. And I then created a little sort of like binocular silhouette of Chuck Norris walking towards him. And that it went viral. I never had a meme go viral before. So it was like, oh, my God, I've made it. <laughs> and then from I kind of enjoy creating the odd meme or two. So, yeah, if you ever follow me on Twitter, you might see some weird shit like that getting posted. <laughs> oh, man, thank you so much for joining me again. I had so much fun. I cannot wait to do this again. Perfect. Uh, look, it's been a pleasure. All right, guys. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Adrian Has Issues, and we will see you next issue. Take care. Thank you for listening to Adrian Has Issues. 
please be sure to visit AdrianHasIssues.com to stream or download our other great episodes. Like us on Facebook at Adrian Has Issues, on Instagram at Adrian Has Issues Pod, and follow us on Twitter at Adrian Has Issues. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the Satchel Podcast app, available on iOS and Android. Adrian Has Issues is a proud member of the Nerdsloth Network, home to such great podcasts as Nerds on Tap, Cinefreak Critique, and Saturday Morning Cartoon Boom. Visit them at nerdsloth.com.